Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. That brings us to chapter 9 of Acts. And this is kind of a, a momentous one. Again, and this has happened in a lot of chapters, remember chapters and verses were not originally part of the Bible. Uh, those were added at a much later date, uh, around the time of the printing press, when they started publishing real printed books, it became more and more important because more people could have books. They could have the Bible. And if you have people in a group, like in a Bible study, and they want to all be at the same place, it's no longer at church where nobody needs to know. All they need to know is, listen, the guy up front has the Bible and he'll be reading it. Now everybody turn to, and I say, the section where Paul is uh breathing out murderous threats. And you're like, okay, just give me a second. I'll find it. I'll find it. And it's so much easier to say, turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. All of our Bibles are the same. We, we do that. We can, we can get there. But there are places in the Bible where those chapter divisions, they... They're not from God. They, they, there's awkward things. And here um, in Acts 9, we're only going to cover uh, to the end of Paul's story, which uh, I believe is verse 31. And there's a few extra verses that are going to talk about Peter. And we'll get to Peter's story later, but we're going to just take Saul's chunk. And I call it chapter 9, but you'll note that we're going to be missing verses 32 and following. We'll pick those up next time. Acts chapter 9, though, is all about Saul, verses 1 through 31. And Saul is somebody that, again, because we know, we have heard of Saul. We know who this guy is, what his story is. And again, I said this was probably true for the first readers of Acts, for Theophilus as well, because uh, of Paul's Saul, Paul, his legacy. Um, people knew about him because he had spent all of those years in his missionary activities getting the word out. He wrote those epistles and those were spread around as well. And so his reputation precedes himself. Um, but the way that Paul is first a part of the story is not that he was a missionary to the Gentiles, but he was that person who was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. And people were throwing his coats before him, and he was approving of the execution. So whether he's like the absolute ringleader, uh, you know, it, it doesn't say that, but he, he has some pretty important position in all of this, and he is clearly against the Christians. So we learned all of that in chapter um 
in, in, at the end of chapter 7 and then at the beginning of chapter 8. It was 8 verse 1, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then we talked about the great persecution, and then that led to the scattering, to the Samaritan mission. And we talked about that last week. But verse 3 of chapter 8, Uh, While the people were going out, it says it was Saul who was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Again, the legal system, the Sanhedrin did not have that absolute right to take somebody's life. The instance of Stephen's life, uh, the stoning, this was more a kind of act of mob justice. This isn't like official, the Romans would not have approved of this kind of thing. Um, and it happened and who knows how the Romans decided to, to, to deal with this. Um, there's some people that speculate this was kind of at a time when there wasn't a strong uh, Roman presence. Uh, we, we know about Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, but um, uh, he was eventually removed from that position uh, as the Roman governor of Judea. And so some people speculate maybe this happened a little bit later and is part of that timeline. Luke doesn't really deal with all of the, the Roman stuff, but the fact that this is going on and the Romans weren't shutting it down either says the Romans are just turning a blind eye to it because they thought this was all a nuisance too, but this is not normal justice. This is not what should be happening. Paul sends them, Saul sends them to prison. Okay, they're going to have a trial. What's going to happen? They may be beaten. Um, they may be threatened, just like the apostles were at the very beginning of Acts by the Sanhedrin. But if there's stoning or any kind of execution like that, this, this would again be mob justice. Uh, the Roman uh, Empire was not at this time and at this place really too concerned about Christians. It's the Jews that are the force of persecution. So that's Saul's background. And then I said, we just sort of skipped over to something completely different, Philip and his two missions, first to the Samaritans and then to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then all of a sudden at the end of chapter eight, um, Philip just kind of exits the picture. Uh, he leaves to go to Azotus and then eventually to Caesarea. And I said, we'll hear about him again in chapter 21. But for right now, we're done with Philip because his part in the story is really over. He brings the gospel to the Samaritans. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So we've got the Samaria part covered. Now, in chapter 9, it seems a little bit abrupt, but we're picking up off of 8.3. Saul, remember this guy. Well, last we heard, he's going house to house in Jerusalem and bringing Christians, men and women, young and old, into prison and We're not really told what happens after that, but here I think we do get an idea because 9 verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, dot, 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 threats and murder. So the only martyrdom that we've heard so far is the account of Stephen. I think with with 9 verse 1, though, 
we should assume that there were other Stevens. There were other Christians who were stoned to death, who were murdered. So they weren't just put in prison and, and that was it. This was so important to the Jews to stop that if murder, if stoning, if killing them would scare people, they were going to do it. You don't just breathe murder if you haven't been involved in murder. So Luke isn't filling us in on all of the persecution that this Saul was a part of, but I think you should all assume Stephen was just the beginning. A lot more has gone on since, and he's not telling us. The other part of how you're going to know this is as we're going to talk about how people view this Saul. If you're a Christian, how is Saul viewed? What do you think of this guy, Saul? You're scared to death of him, right? Because you know that he can and will do anything and everything. It's not just bringing you to jail. You know that he will follow through on those threats that he makes. So this is somebody that you're pretty scared of if you're a Christian. Well, here's the hard part. This was all taking place in Jerusalem, but 9 verse 1 says he goes to the high priest. Again, the high priest is kind of considered the not just religious authority, but they kind of look to them in legal matters as well. Uh, it's not official Roman government, but for the Jews, the high priest is the kind of president or leader of the Sanhedrin. They're the ones that have the authority. So Saul goes to this high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at, this, at Damascus, so that if found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this tells us a couple of things. One, that the Jews in Jerusalem have realized the message has gone out. This, this is not just in Jerusalem anymore, that, that Christians are out and about and telling other people about Jesus. Now, we as readers know that this is true because we've heard about how the persecution caused the disciples of Jesus uh, to, to flee. The apostles still remained there, but other disciples and followers of Jesus, they fled. And we heard about how Philip brought that message out to a couple of different places very far. Uh, from the concerns of Jerusalem. Here, we learn about the city of Damascus. Uh, I didn't bring a map, but Damascus is located in the far north. So if you know anything about uh, that area, you have uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. Uh, Jesus does most of his ministry around Galilee. That's the area around the sea. Uh, Jerusalem is like down here. Uh, Bethlehem is somewhere like there. Damascus is like way up here. It's way north of, of Galilee. It's not really in the, the normal area that you would think of Judea today. It's modern day Syria. It's about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. And again, think about communication in those days and travel. Like, this is really far away for Paul, Saul, sorry, I'm going to confuse that name a lot. So far, he's just Saul. Uh, it's a very long distance for Saul to be concerned about, but he is, and he has heard that 
Christians are there already. So it tells us that Christianity has gone out. The message of Jesus has gone way out to Damascus. But Saul's going to try to be reining it in, to bring it in. Okay, people think that if they just leave Jerusalem, they're safe and they can tell others about Jesus. We want to make sure that that message uh, is, is gone, that people fear for their lives if they're Christians, no matter where they are. All right. We don't we don't know any other reason why Damascus. What was so special? Just that he wanted to go to Damascus. Maybe there were other people, other Saul's that went to other places. Again, keep in mind, Luke is not telling us the whole picture, every single detail of what happened. He has a very specific story that he wants to tell. And Saul is a big player in that story because he's going to be the apostles to the, the apostle to the Gentiles. So that's why we're focusing on them. So it's possible that other people, other Saul's went to other places, but he's going to go to Damascus. And why is he going to do that? To bring people back, Christians back, to bring the fear of the Jewish authorities to those places as well. Nancy? No, 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 no. This is way before that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because Paul dies. Saul, Paul dies before 70 AD. He dies probably 66. Uh, there's, there's some wiggle room, maybe by a couple of years, 64. Um, this is in the mid 30s, probably 35, 36, 37. It's, it's hard to tell because again, Luke, Luke doesn't give us all of those signposts. He's, he's, he's not, so concerned about that. Um, but yeah, this is still very early, very early. All right, so that's where we are so far. Saul, I'm headed to Damascus. We're going to get some of those Christians. We're going to bring them back. Uh, interesting thing here. They're called not Christians, but, but who? People who belong to the way. Um, this is an interesting way to talk about Christians. Uh, it's unclear if this is what they called themselves or if this is what Jews called them. It's unclear what this refers to even. Um, there's a couple of different possibilities. Uh, if you look in Acts in a couple of different places for other times where the way happens earlier, uh, the apostles talk about they talk about what they believe as leading to the way of salvation. So like maybe it's short for that. Um, we obviously have in our minds John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So maybe that is where it's from. There's also another motif that's there in the Old Testament, um, very strong. This idea, uh, and it sort of feeds into some of the other things that I just mentioned, but this idea that there are two ways or two paths in life. There is the, the life of, of faithfulness and obedience to God, and then there is the life of disobedience and unfaithfulness. Uh, this goes way back to Deuteronomy. 
Uh, remember just before the Israelites are going to enter into the promised land, uh, they have this uh, covenant ceremony to remember that the, the covenant that God made with their ancestors is the same covenant that he makes with them. Now the next generation who are about to enter the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 30, 15, uh, God tells, uh, Moses tells them, you know, see, God is laying before you uh, life and death and cursing and blessing. And put those the opposite way. Uh, life is blessing, the death is, is cursing. And you're sort of in charge of which of those things happens. Will you follow me, then life and blessings, or will you disobey, then, you know, th- this, this is all shut down. And this motif is picked up in other places, in Proverbs and in, like, Psalms, Psalm 1 especially, that there's one way to live, God's way, and all of the other ways that can one can live really only count as the other way to live, either with God or without God. And so the way would also then perhaps refer to that, that that this is faithfulness to God and this obedience. Again, the terminology Christian does not seem to be there. We have not come across that. We'll run across it later. So the early people, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're just people who believe in God. Jew and Christian, to them, it should all be the same thing. We were waiting for the Messiah, and now we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but we're still those same people. We haven't changed. God has changed us because of where the story is now. So the way. It's it's thrown out there, but we don't know much more about it. There's still some uh, Christian groups occasionally that will will borrow this and call themselves that, but um, it, hasn't, it hasn't really stuck too much as a way of referring to Christians as a whole, either Christians referring to themselves or others referring to them. But it's interesting here, nonetheless, that they're so cohesive that they can have a specific name attached to them, and people know, oh yeah, the way, those people, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, our guy Saul. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So there's, there's the big moment on the Damascus road where Jesus appears to Saul. And from what we know so far, uh, there, there's, there's been no preparation for any of this, right? We know exactly why Saul is traveling to Damascus. Saul knows this. The people who are with him know this. It's for one purpose, and it is to attack the Christians. But there, as they're traveling, all of a sudden it says there's a light and a sound, a voice calling from that light. The, the imagery of, of God 
as as brightness or light. Uh, that's you know a pretty common way of of God revealing Himself and His glory. I mean, think Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration as as sort of one easy placeholder of when when you see God, it's it's just this brightness and this shining, which all feeds into, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. We are in a world of, of sin and darkness, even though you think, oh, it's, it's a bright world out there. Well, even the sun in comparison to the glory of God, it's nothing. It's like darkness. So there's brightness, which, you know, just think biologically, if something's really bright, you kind of you have to look away or, or cover your eyes. That also kind of does an important thing because that idea of unholy or unclean people looking on God, that's kind of, you know, a no-no. Um, so Saul, I don't know if he actually is comprehending this with his eyes, but he's, he's hearing, he sees brightness, and we learn at the end that he's blind after this encounter. He, he can't see. So you know, so, something went on there, not just naturally, but also supernaturally, that he, this sinful person, this persecutor of the church, encounters the one holy God, Jesus himself, and Jesus's words are breathtaking. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's no evidence right, that Saul ever persecuted Jesus. We do not know if Saul ever encountered Jesus. Some people, you know, okay, try to connect the dots. Saul was in Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee. He was studying with Gamaliel. So it's possible Jesus was also in Jerusalem from time to time, especially in Holy Week. So it's possible that, you know, they their pot their paths crossed we don't know that Saul never really refers to that but I think even if they didn't ever run into one another based on what we hear in the gospels and how the Pharisees were were so against Jesus not just in Jerusalem but that they kind of followed Jesus around as he traveled as well I think it's probably nearly impossible that Saul had never heard of Jesus until Pentecost, until Stephen. I think he probably knew something about Jesus, even if he had never encountered him, just because of hearsay, because of what other people have been saying about him. So this, when, when he encounters Jesus, it may not necessarily be, uh, you know, oh yeah, I recognize him, I, I, I saw him. Um, it's rather, this remarkable thing that he says, you're persecuting me. And no doubt Saul's like, well, I know of you. I've heard about you. I'm not persecuting you. I, I am persecuting. I'm persecuting all of these people who say that they believe in you and who are telling others about you. But I'm not persecuting you. So what's going on there that Jesus would say that? that you're persecuting me. He didn't, Jesus didn't say, you're persecuting my brothers and sisters. You're persecuting the church. It's, you're persecuting me, which doesn't seem to be the case. He's persecuting the followers of Jesus. Oh, yeah? So, like, he's talking about 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's 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 this very close connection that Jesus claims that that if you're persecuting the followers, I'm I I associate with them. I am there with them. It's not just them that you're hurting. You're hurting me. Um, again, all of the, the language and theology isn't necessarily right there in this passage, but that idea of, of the body of Christ, that, that that unity that we have in Jesus is real and true unity. We may not be able to see it or you can't take a test to show it, but I think Jesus here is affirming that, that it's, it's there and it's real, that connection. Um, so that's, again, one of those remarkable things, just theologically. Um, to think that we as Christians are, are a part of the body of Christ in such a way that, oh, actually, I think Jesus has said something like this, right? Whatever you do unto the least of these brothers of mine, you do, you do it to me. So Jesus has kind of already prepared the way. He's, he's said all of these things before, and maybe people didn't really take that seriously, but here um, he affirms it you, Saul, have been persecuting those people, what you don't realize is that you are persecuting me. And why is this such a big deal? Because in this moment, again, all of the words aren't spoken, but it's made crystal clear, Jesus is not some false prophet. He really is the Son of God. And me persecuting him means that I am doing what? I'm sinning against God. Remember who, who Saul is. The reason that he was so fervent to get rid of these Christians is because he thought that they were teaching heresy, that they were breaking the law of Moses, that they were not being faithful to God, that they were teaching that there was another God who is not the God of Moses. And that's, that's a serious crime that you have to take seriously. But now Saul realizes that he is the one who was wrong. Jesus is not some false person. He truly is the Son of God. And, oh boy, he has me in his sights. So what is this Jesus going to do to me? Well, maybe Saul is waiting for that punishment to come, but Jesus' words after that, rise and enter in the city, and you'll be told what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are two things here. So the word in Greek is Kyrios, and that word that we know is, you know, the Kyrie, Lord have mercy. Um, it, it can be that uppercase L, Lord, and a confession of faith that you recognize God not as just Lord, but, you know, Yahweh. But the same word can also be a, a way to say something. We don't do this very much in, in our world, but, but something like, sir. You're, it's a word of respect, not a word of divinity, but a word of respect. And so when you come to this particular verse where he says, Lord, uh, as a translator, you have to make a choice of, of which, which is it. Uh, is he just saying, whoa, yeah, what, what's, what's going on, sir? I, I, I don't know who you are. Or is he saying, Lord, like God, you're, you're here. But he's asking, 
Who are you? Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, I don't, I don't think at this point he knows what's going on, but he realizes that power, weakness, how, how do you address power when you're the weaker party? A, a term like curious. It happens in the Gospels, too. Um, you don't always, um, you're not always aware of it. Sometimes it's footnoted, especially in some of the more questionable places, that when Jesus is addressed there, sometimes the translators will choose sir, sometimes lord, because they feel it, it is a confession of faith. It's the same word in Greek. Context is really the only determiner. So that's kind of what's going on. All right, so Saul, here's what you're supposed to do. Go to Damascus, and that's all Saul is told. Again, try to put yourself in Saul's position. Do you think he's scared? Do you think he's confident? Do you think he is now a reborn man of faith? Where, where do you think Saul is at, at this moment after this encounter with Jesus? Sylvia? Mm-hmm. Has been mm-hmm. Because he had realized now that everything he needs mm-hmm. has been educated in. Mm-hmm. He's no longer church. Yeah. He is now on the other side. Right. Right. And and again, it's not as though um oh, I I don't know if I can come up off the top of my head with a, a good analogy, but you know, it's it's not as though you know, two teams are playing and you, you bet hard against the, the one team to win and, you know, you are mocking the other side and, and booing them and whatever. And then when the end of the game comes, you, you find out that you, your team lost and maybe you rode in a bus with fans of all of that other team are you going to be pretty quiet on that bus on the ride home? Are you going to be like apologetic to them or, you know, you can blame the officials or, you know, something else for what's going on? He put all of his eggs in this basket that now turns, it's not that he was neutral to God's plans. He was actually thwarting what God was trying to do in Jesus, the son of God. Um, sheepish is like the very least you could describe probably that feeling. We hear that he fasts after this. And so maybe that's a clue. Um, fasting is usually done in times when you're joyful and happy. No, fasting is usually associated with what kind of repentance, uh, grief, sorrow. These are the times that, that you fast. And again, remember, in, in the biblical world, fasting is not merely abstaining from food, but it is abstaining from food so that you can dedicate yourself to God, to prayer, usually specifically. It can also be to worship or to reading God's word, but it's, it's, it's that humbling yourself and re-listening to God's word and recognizing how important it is. And that's where Saul is at this point in the story. So I don't think we would say that, although we say this is his conversion, his conversion on the Damascus road, I think right now he's been crushed by the law. You have done wrong. And 
what's, what's he going to say? He has no excuse, right? He had the same words that the Christians had in front of him, except he closed his ears to those words and attacked them. So he's felt the law, and here I think he's falling at God's throne um, in prayer, in repentance. That, I think, is what is being communicated by the fact that he fasts for three days. So we don't yet have Saul reborn, that he knows that he's going to go and tell others about Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit's still going to be at work in him, and we'll see maybe where that happens. All right, second part of the story. Okay, we're now in Damascus, and there's this guy there, Ananias. He is a disciple of Jesus. He is a follower of the way, and he also has an encounter with the Lord, and the Lord is going to tell Ananias, all right, I'm bringing this guy named Saul of Tarsus, and we find out Saul's reputation precedes him. Ananias hears that, and he's scared. Oh, he's coming to town, but you're going to go and visit him. He's there at Judas's house on Straight Street. You go to him, and uh, Ananias, I think, probably is a, a normal, rational person like all of us. And uh, I think that when he, he tells, the Lord tells Ananias that you're going to go do this, you're going to come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight, he's thinking, does that seem like the right plan? Sounds like we have Saul right where we want him. He's blind and he's at our mercy. You want me to go to him and restore his sight? I know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to come after me and all of the other Christians. And so Ananias says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Interesting here. He refers to the Christians, not as to the people of the way, but as saints. Um, a, another great term for who we are, that we are God's holy people. And here he has authority from the tree, chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Another thing thrown in here, who, who, are, who are we as Christians? We are simply people who call on your name. Again, there's a lot of different names floating around. They, they weren't concerned about identifying themselves as we are the Christians. We are the Lutheran Church of Missouri. You know, they're not doing that, but they know what unites them. We're saints. We are people who are forgiven and made holy by Jesus. We are people who call on your name. Kind of follows after that Pentecost uh, sermon by Peter. Uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So repent, <laughs> call on, on, on Jesus as your Lord. And that's what they're referring to themselves as well. Okay, the Lord hears Ananias and says to him, go. There's, he doesn't even have the time of day for this argument or the excuses. It's just, Ananias, you heard what I said. Go. This is why. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So that verse right there is another Acts 1-8 moment. Uh, in Acts 1-8, we have the, you will be my witnesses, the commissioning that goes to the apostles. And it's true, they will do all of those things. But here is introduced Saul, that other chosen instrument, the vessel that God is going to use. His commission is a little bit different than all of the other apostles. Highlighted most of all is that you 
Well, he's talking to Ananias. So he will go to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And this becomes another um, foreshadowing for us of the story that Luke is going to tell, the story of Saul, because Saul is going to do all of those things. He is going to go to the Gentiles. He is going to go before kings and confess that Jesus is the Lord. And he is also going to go uh, before and among the children of Israel, himself being an Israelite. So this is another uh, key verse, kind of like part two of the story, even though we haven't technically finished part one. Uh, so I would, I would say, boom, that's, that's important. For, he continues, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You got to love God, right? He's just such a great guy, uh, God. But I'm, he's going he's gonna to bear my name to the whole world. You're like, this sounds really awesome. Sign me up for that. For I will show him how much he will suffer. Uh, what? Why, why, why can't God just have stopped at that first sentence? Why can't he just say, I'm gonna, he's going to be this great missionary, the word's going to go out, but no, he is going to suffer as well. That, that the cross is there in all of the disciples' lives. It's there in all of the apostles' lives because they are joined to Jesus. And, and Jesus' life is a life where he bore that cross. And there is discomfort in knowing that in our life we will bear the cross, that there will be suffering, not just general suffering that everybody experiences because we live in a world of sin and brokenness, but there will be suffering that is specific because you are a Christian, because you believe in Jesus. And the suffering comes in a lot of different ways and forms. Um, Satan attacks, the world attacks. We even, our own sinful flesh sometimes rebels and, and fights against the, the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so the, the suffering that Saul is going to experience, it's just as much a part of his story as he will go before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The word and suffering go together, but he's never going to be alone in any of this. Jesus, the one that he persecuted, if Saul is himself going to be persecuted, Jesus is there with him in that. Jesus is the one that is being persecuted and Saul's persecuted because he follows Jesus. So, Right there, you have kind of that hard part of, of our Christian lives. We, we have the blessings of God, but right alongside those blessings, suffering is promised as well. Um, and that's why, kind of as I said in, in my sermon today, that we're always going to be at a loss when we try to figure out what is going on and what God is doing in our lives at any specific time. God never says that we'll understand what he's doing in our lives, but we have to trust him. We have to trust that even when it looks like we're going the opposite way of, of where we think we should be, and I have to believe that in his life, Saul faced many of those days, 
that, that nevertheless he, he continued to persist in his work and in his ministry. And he knew that God is at work. God, God is going to do things and it might not be the way that I think he's going to do them. Um, and that's going to be very clear in just the next few verses that some strange stuff is happening. And it, you wouldn't think it went that way, but it did. So the next thing we hear about is Ananias, he goes to see Saul, um, <coughs> and uh, he lays his hands on him, and he says these words, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So there's kind of a pun here, uh, the, the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands can be a very violent thing because it's kind of a euphemism for arresting somebody. You lay hands on them to bring them into jail, which is exactly what Saul was on his way to do in Damascus, what he had done in Jerusalem. And ironically, Saul is the one who has hands laid on him, but even more ironically, these are not hands of violence or ill intent. Instead, they speak a word of blessing and a word of forgiveness. So Ananias here never says, Jesus forgives you. Not in those words, but what does he say that shows that God's forgiveness is conveyed even to Saul. That, that, that happens afterwards, but he says something. Okay, I, yeah, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it's the first word he says. Brother. Remember? This Saul, you know, this Saul of Tarsus, he's the guy who's against us. He's not a part of us. He's come to persecute and arrest us. And, and Ananias had his reservations. But here, his first word to Saul is brother. How is it possible that they are brothers? That there is a fellowship there between them. That they're all part of God's family. Remember, this is one of our words for what is it that happened at the cross. Um, we say that God, that, that Jesus reconciled us to God. This is a relationship term, right? That, that another, another one, we are adopted into God's family. It's a relationship term to get us to understand that what this is about, our, our thing with God is not merely uh, an, an intellectual thing, but faith is a trust, a love. We use relational words because it is a relationship that we have with God. And when Ananias says to this guy, Saul, who is an enemy of the church, I mean, there is zero evidence so far that Saul is a believer in Jesus. We know that he's repentant, probably, or he's grieving or is sorrowing. That's what the fasting is about. But Ananias, I don't think, knew about all of that. He just knew that Jesus is telling me to come to you and to lay hands on you. And so I'm going to do that. And if Jesus is telling me to do all of that, then... I think that says something about who you are, that you're my brother. 
So it's true, yes, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And obviously, if the Holy Spirit is a part of his life too, then there is, you know, that sign that the Holy Spirit is working forgiveness in him, that he is converted, you know, that he is a Christian himself. So the interesting thing here is we make a big deal about of the Damascus Road moment, but I think if you have to put a place of where he's converted, I think it's Ananias's encounter here in the house where Saul makes that change. Because you can be sorry for your sins, but that doesn't mean that you know that Jesus forgives you, that he loves you, that you are a part of the family of God. I don't think that's made clear until Ananias comes and recognizes him as, we're the same, you and me. We're both brothers in, in Jesus. So it may sound like it's reaching. He didn't, again, he doesn't say those words, Jesus forgives you or I forgive you. But I think that familial term brother, um, it's not just a throwaway word. I think it, it really means something. And again, if you're Saul, how vulnerable he was to be there. I mean, he knew exactly what he was going to do to the Christians. He knew the Christians were afraid of him. Wasn't he afraid that they would do the same thing, you know, kill him, torture him, whatever? He was vulnerable to anything. And instead, what he experiences is grace, is that undeserved love shown to him by a man that he was ready to come and throw in prison with everybody else. So after this, uh, we talk about the scales falling from his eyes. And this is kind of the, there's something supernatural that happened with his blindness. It wasn't just that he couldn't see because it isn't now all of a sudden um, he has vision, but it's, it's, there's something that falls from his eyes. So this, this is a supernatural thing, I think. And part of what he receives when Ananias comes and, and prays for him. When I said scales earlier, yeah. I think of scales as like not something yeah. Metaphorically. Yeah. I think he should have been through because, again, if you were there through the, the preaching of Stephen and, and whatnot, like the spirit was a part of what they were, were saying at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. So I. Um. I mean, to, yeah, to answer what he what he believes is is pretty difficult to, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's there's going to be some work that that has to be done probably, but he's also, I mean, he was a brilliant guy, and the best way to attack your enemy is to know your enemy. So, I mean, knowing and belief are going to be two different things. I think we're we're witnessing the change from knowledge to to belief. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, getting, getting a penitent heart mm -hmm. the process of fasting and it's I didn't say this and I didn't even write it down but this strikes me as a, a brilliant insight that somebody has said elsewhere because I'm not original to this but the three days correspondence to for three days the disciples were in the dark about Jesus he's dead. What, you know, what do we do? What is this all about? They had to struggle with 
the law was there at the cross, so was grace, but I think the disciples were really feeling and understanding the law of like, we let God down, we let this happen because we abandoned him. If we would have stayed with him, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And Saul kind of is going through his own similar experience that way. Like he was 100% for God, but he misunderstood what God was doing and because of that rejected Jesus. And now he starts to come to a place of that's wrong. And here he has his moment with Ananias, which is like the disciples moment on Easter. Their eyes are open. They receive the Holy Spirit and they are going to be receiving a commission that they're going to be bringing this word out to others. Um, and also, I, even though I didn't really pause a long time, but note again, as a part of this, he rose and was baptized, verse 18, that baptism was a part of his conversion. You know, so if there's any doubt about any of it before in that conversation, here that he too was baptized, he's doing those very things that all Christians are a part of. And then he takes food because he hasn't eaten for three days. He's strengthened. The next paragraph I'm going to kind of um, zoom, the next three looks like in my page, uh, zoom over because we're going to kind of get back to this. These are more challenging um, because really we're not going to be, we're going to say a little bit more about Saul. The first thing is that he's truly converted and now he's 100% on God's side. So he now is a Stephen, a Philip. He's going to go to all of the synagogues, not to persecute, but now to tell others that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's going to argue with that same wisdom that Stephen had, wisdom of the Holy Spirit that, that nobody can contest. Uh, it only It just angers them because they realize... I don't have anything to say against this guy, but I don't think he's right. And Saul's going to experience that same kind of thing. But it, along the way, um, Luke is not giving us a biography of Saul. And the reason we know this, we think, is because if we compare some of what happens here with what Saul says, Paul, in his letters... He talks about in Galatians 1 how after his conversion, he leaves Damascus and he goes to Arabia for a period of three years. Uh, the closest thing that Luke tells us to that is that um, he says for many days, uh, where's the verse? Uh, gotta go to chapter 9. Uh, 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill them, but their plot became known to Saul. That verse, when many days had passed. In trying to figure out the biography and the timeline, it seems like when many days had passed is three years, which you would say, that's many days. I guess Luke was right. Um, again, Luke isn't trying to give us the biography of Paul so that he compresses and, and doesn't tell certain details. Yeah, yeah that's important, uh, whatever. But what is kind of important to the story is that he leaves Damascus. He comes back to Damascus. His life is threatened. You will suffer many things for my name. And where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. And there, everybody's still afraid of him. I mean, that's how bad this Saul guy is. That even though I think by now they should have heard stories, you know that, that Saul's talking about Jesus now, don't you? And some people were like, 
I could not believe it. You know, it's, it's a ruse. He's undercover. He's trying to learn our leadership, our network, and then they'll pull the string. They just did not trust this Saul until Barnabas comes alongside Saul and testifies that no, he's one of us, guys. He is our brother in Christ, and we need to receive him as such. And so Saul, during this time, talks to the apostles. The apostles are still in Jerusalem and gets from them all of the stories about Jesus, make sure, you know, they're on the same page, and then he goes. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes to Tarsus. And again, trying to put together the biography, it seems that he spends six, seven, eight years in Tarsus before we're going to hear from him again as a missionary. So there are parts of Saul's life that we don't know a lot about. We don't know a lot about his time in Arabia. If it weren't for Galatians, I don't think we would even know that he went to Arabia. And his time in Tarsus, Luke doesn't talk about that. We don't know exactly what all happened there, what he was doing, what he was learning, the organizing, you know, what was going on. We just know when he comes back, the missionary journeys are going to be the next thing. Because again, Luke isn't telling us the biography of Paul. The reason Paul is going to be important is because he is the missionary to the Gentiles, and that's where things will pick up in chapter 11. So, Saul, we hear about this big change, and we're really hot on this, and then it's like radio silence. And why radio silence? Well, the, the word of the Lord is doing other things in other people. This wasn't the only thing going on, and so we're going to hear next about Peter and some of his uh, encounters with people and how the gospel is beginning to go out to the Gentiles through the apostles, which will only be confirmed and furthered when they send out Saul. All right, so maybe a little short on the biography of Saul. There's probably more we could have done with the latter portion there, but I want to kind of keep us moving along. But also, again, the point of the book of Acts, even though we learn a lot about Saul, it's not about Saul. It's always been about Jesus, what he continues to teach and continues to do. And Saul just happens to be one of many vessels that God uses to get that word of Jesus out. Thanks, guys. We'll resume the rest of chapter nine and stuff with Peter and Cornelius next time. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.